It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman, along with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give the doctor a nice review. Give him five stars. And of course, uh, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas, by the way. It is the most wonderful time of the year, Dr. Stu. Yeah, it is the most wonderful time of the year, and especially last week when it was chilly here in California. Now, even though this is, uh, podcast is being posted delayed, it's uh, 85 degrees outside, right. which just doesn't seem right to me being from Minnesota. It that, doesn't seem right to me uh, being right. from Staten Island. And I think there's something Ooh. happens because you came to Southern California in 1980. Am I right about that? Uh, 82. I 82. Get, correct. So how long did it take for your blood to thin and for 50 degrees to feel cold to you? Two weeks. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah literally. I went back that I went back that Thanksgiving, my first year here. I went home for Thanksgiving and it was freezing. And it was, and then again, I'm not, I'm not a big uh, advocate for global warming or anything like that, but- I think if I remember correctly, the winters seemed colder when I was younger. They just did. Oh, then 30 years later. Yeah, than they do now. Right. Uh, well, yeah. no, only 20 years later, 20 some odd. No, 30, 30, 31 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, yeah, to me, it's just, uh, I like a little bit of snow and uh, all I have to do is go down to the Americana in Glendale where they manufacture the snow. And I think they do it at the Grove in Hollywood and the fake snow falls for five or 10 minutes in the evening. When was the last time you were back home for Christmas? It's been a long time. Yeah, do you miss it? You know what? Not so much. Did you have snow on Staten Island? Oh yeah, we'd have snow on Staten. Yeah, and electricity it, it, and plumbing it, as did well. It, did it snow on the on the ladies there? <laughs> See, I, I want to mention that because Doctor <laughs> Stu was uh, posting a podcast last week on Facebook, and. Of course, many listeners to Dr. Stu's podcast, we always say, share this on your Facebook page, tweet it out, email it to your friends. And uh, a listener of Dr. Stu's podcast, she wrote on there a a thoughtful comment, a criticism from me. Constructive, with love. Right. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it said, why does Brian always refer to us as pregnant ladies? There's something, I'm I'm paraphrasing her, I don't know if she used this word, something sort of condescending and patronizing she felt about the term pregnant ladies. She wants me to say pregnant women. So perhaps that's an adjustment I need to make, or should I mix them both up? Or what's right anymore? I think that you shouldn't be that sensitive and that either should have this, this listener should not have been that sensitive (laughs) to it. Because I think she knows in your heart what a great person person you are. And so the fact is that ladies is something that you and I probably grew up with. Right. You know, ladies and gentlemen, and that's sort of the way we talk. And so pregnant ladies is actually a very proper and and, uh, correct way to describe someone who's pregnant. And And a female. Right. Well, they're all female. Right, of course. Just, right, just right. So you know, Everybody who's pregnant is female. Right. We were talking on the radio. Well, there uh, was that one guy. Who, yeah, uh, yeah, odd, right? Yeah. Well, there's always one. There's always going to be one. Right. There's always going to be one. We have some medical news here at the top of Dr. Stu's podcast today. Yeah, that we do. We do. I was just listening this morning. What did we hear? Well, we heard this morning that it turns out multivitamins, they're saying, story comes out, that they're a waste of money. And we do live in a country and a society where a lot of people throw down the vitamins every morning. And I mean, a handful of them. Big time bucks. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's expensive, right? Right. Well, I think the story was more about vitamins than it was about supplements. They didn't really get into alternative supplements. They talked mainly What's about What's the difference multivit- between vitamins and supplements? Well, supplements are things like uh, fish oil and uh, certain herbal things like saw palmetto or oregano or other things that people may take that are different than multivitamins. Vitamins are like vitamin B and vitamin C and vitamin D and vitamin K. Okay. And vitamin A and carotene. B12 is one of them? Yeah, B12 is one of the Bs. See, I don't know what food has any of these. I know vitamin C is the sunshine, right? Right. That's all I know. In pregnancy, I've always said that that the problem with vitamins in pregnancy is that everyone believes that they have to take one. And if they don't take one, they're not being a good good mom because they're so reinforced by the medical community 
and by their neighbors and friends who all say, oh, you know, they find out you're pregnant or you're taking your vitamin. And that's because it's become sort of a habit that we not really, we don't think about. But if you eat a healthy diet in the United States, it's very unlikely you're going to be vitamin deficient in anything that's vital. The one vitamin that we do recommend because it has been shown to decrease the incidence of uh, spinal bifida is folic acid. Okay. And most multivitamins only have 400 micrograms of folic acid. And we think that you need at least 800 micrograms to 1,000 micrograms. So over the years, you've advised a clients and patients to take a multivitamin? Well, I've advised people to take an extra folic acid pill. I see. And then if they want to take a vitamin, I'm not against it. However, a lot of women in the first trimester are nauseous because of the hormones of pregnancy, and vitamins tend to compound that. So I just reassure them that if you don't take a vitamin, your baby's going to be just fine. As a matter of fact, your baby's only about one-tenth the size of the pill that you're swallowing, and it's not going to be a problem because babies are excellent at sucking from your body what it needs. So the vitamin is actually not so much for the developing fetus. It's actually to replenish the things that the fetus is taking from you. But if you eat a healthy diet, you're going to get pretty much all the vitamins, the Bs and Cs and Ds and things that you need. But isn't that sort of the thing? We live in a society where so many people eat on the go and so many people have uh, lifestyles that are really too active. They're juggling too many things and they feel like, okay, I haven't really eaten well today or this week, so let me take some of these vitamins to make up for it. Well, the study just says, and again, the study is, remember we talked about on a previous podcast, my feeling about studies. And sometimes what the, you have to look behind them and see what the motivation is mm-hmm. and how they're conducted and that, and this is a meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis is a study that looks back at other studies, and they can be, you know, some of those studies may or may not have been well-controlled, or they might not have been very scientific, or they might have had an agenda, and so you don't really know, reading a press release about a study, mm-hmm. what the study really means, mm-hmm. so I would rather not make judgment about this vitamin recommendation until I saw the actual study. Mm-hmm. That's my problem with these sorts of things, but they're only really, again, talking about Uh, multivitamins. And they're saying in this one particular article that they may not be beneficial and you end up just paying money and sort of literally pissing it out. Right, right. And that's what happens. And And if if, if a woman is pregnant, not a lady, you know, so I said a woman with deference to our our, uh, listener on Facebook who took issue with that. What is we're, the, we're not going to bow down to that sort of pressure. No, but I, you can tell I'm it's obsessing. It's a major, major pressure. Can you see I'm obsessing about no, it? That's your normal state. Right, that's my normal state. Right, thank you for that. It is true though. What what is what is the vitamin that uh, that a pregnant woman might need? I mean, what well, you you said a folic acid. So, but that you know. Yeah, folate folate is the probably the number one vitamin. Probably some of the minerals that would be helpful for them is iron. Mm. We almost always recommend iron, uh, calcium, magnesium, zinc mm-hmm. are are often helpful. But, you know, generally, again, if you eat a normal, healthy American diet with food from the four basic uh, food categories, which are, you know, proteins, fruits and vegetables, uh, dairy and carbohydrates, like grains and pasta, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you're going to get pretty much all the vitamins you need. Because a lot of our foods, in in whether it's organic or whether it's regular food that you buy at the grocery store, is fortified with with certain vitamins and and minerals that are that are useful for your body. I don't know if this is uh, is helpful, but I had somebody tell me a nutritionist once tell me, uh, Brian, the best thing to do is look at your plate when you're having a meal, and there should be a lot of colors on it. Colors is important. We've talked about that right. in previous podcast. Yeah, yeah, right. You and I, we are are we basically have pale beiges and yellows. That's exactly right. And maybe a little black. Yeah, burger. Mine looks like it. television from the 1950s. It's yeah, black, black and, white. and white. There's the potato and the very well done But steak. then you have the ketchup, so that adds some color. Yeah, to it does your add a little bit of splash, a little splash of no, color. No, color there. is good. Orange is good. Things like uh, and green, sweet of course. potatoes right? and carrots. Green, of course, salads. 
Uh, asparagus, broccoli is always an excellent food. Another one of the uh, of the stories that we saw in the uh, from the medical file today, and the news uh, that's come out in recent days. Uh, this one is about hand sanitizer and all the Purell, and we're pumping the uh, the hand sanitizer and everybody every two minutes with the Purell. And I guess the story says, Doctor Stu, you know what? It's not doing anything for you. Yeah, that's you know this is a story that I just read uh, before the show. And I haven't really had time to analyze it yet. They don't identify any specific hand sanitizer or any hand sanitizer product, but you can generally imply that they're talking about stuff like Purell. And there's the other one. I can't remember what the other one is, but there is. Nobody uh, knows the other one. Nobody it's, knows the other one. Like, Purell has cornered the market. It's like Kleenex has cornered the tissue market. Well, yeah, Kleenex be- has become a synonym for tissue, tissue right. when in fact Kleenex is a product And name. Purell has basically done the same thing with hand soap. Yeah, that's you know, a great like point. People say you're going to. You pass me the Purell. They don't say pass me the hand soap. Anymore. Right, right, right. Right. This, well, this study just says that there's no necessarily proven benefit in some of these things. And for some people with certain medical conditions, it might actually make, there might be toxins in it that make it worse. And so they want the companies to actually prove that the product does any good. And funny, buried down about the sixth paragraph is a quote from the person uh, from the FDA's Center for Drug and Evaluation and Research says, quote, we think that companies ought to have data before they make claims. Oh, oh. So, it, six paragraphs in? Six paragraphs yeah. in, right. But might that, shouldn't that be the headline, really, in fact? Well, it should be the, you know what, that should be <laughs> that should be the motto of all people who are on the media and the news and politicians and doctors. and, you, sh- and you shouldn't be making claims until you have data, and the data should be critically looked at before it's really considered uh, honest and, and effective. And so, bona fide. Right. Right. Yeah. So in this study, I don't know what to say because they, they exclude, it says here specifically that hand sanitizers, wipes, and antibacterial products used in healthcare settings are not affected, which I don't really understand because in every hospital room and every hospital hallway is a Purell dispenser. Right. It's very so common. how can it be okay there and not okay someplace else? So they didn't make it very clear as to what they're talking about, but it's just something that the listeners should maybe look into more as, as more information comes out about it and maybe consider using soap. They basically say soap and water yeah, is your best uh, bet. And that's sort of one of the messages that I gleaned from the report is that there is no substitute for soap and water. And people say, and I'm, I'm showing my hands to Dr. Stu, look at these hands. I mean, really, have I have I dug a ditch? Yeah. Uh, I have, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. These are manly hands. Well, and you, I'm, I'm, you'll probably obsessively wash your hands about I do, 16 right. times a right. day. They say, they, right. they say you have to get in between the fingers. Right. That's what people forget. And under the fingernails. And, and, they, and I heard a rule of thumb, Dr. Stu. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you in the past, but somebody once said to me, uh, or I, I heard it on television, they said, if you wash your hands, you should sing in your head the happy birthday song two times. And that's how long you should lather your hands up with the soap for it to really be a good wash really yeah so <laughs> Who told you that well, I, somebody on tv you know happy birthday to you two times the whole song yeah mo- most people don't have that sort of time in their day to wash their hands for that long <laughs> i will tell you that they do have rules about scrubbing for surgery and things like that where they use brushes and they get under their nails and they have these things how but long is a scrub for surgery today it depends the first scrub of the day <laughs> is supposed to be at least five minutes really yes but no one does it no one does it yeah. right right yeah they should put a hidden camera in front of the uh the sink in front of the operating room and watch how how badly doctors scrub up for surgery. Well, we've talked on previous podcasts about how, you know, the hospital is this sanitized. Uh, that would actually that would actually be quite interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, like an old candid camera, totally hidden video kind of yeah, deal. Yeah, it would just be, you know, block out the people's faces so you can't see them, but so you respect their privacy. But you would be surprised at how fast people scrub up for surgeries. Especially surgeons who who you know who do this all the time. They don't, ER doctors and things like they, that, or right? just general surgeons who have, are doing four or five cases in a day, 
you know, they do a case and they go off and they eat and then they come back. And, and they second, use the restroom and, and, and they do all. And their second scrub is, is, you know, 30, 40 seconds and they're done. But so it's, but it's but supposed the, to be five minutes before each surgery, right? Well, but the truth is, is that, you know, you're, you're killing most of the bacteria on your hands and then you're covering your hands with, with these gloves anyway. So the reason you scrub your hands is in case the glove tears or breaks, which doesn't happen very often in surgery. Because you have a ba- the glove's a barrier. The glove is, the, is an absolute barrier. Right. So the reason you scrub is not because your bacteria in your hand are going to penetrate the glove. It's because you may penetrate, the glove may tear or you may poke yourself with a needle or something like that. And then, and then you're, you're, the patient may be exposed to your bacteria. But that's a really rare occurrence. Speaking of surgeries, did, did you ever stop as, as a doctor, Dr. Stu, and marvel at the stories of people who go into hospitals, for example, and uh, they come out and like they go into surgery and their leg was amputated and they weren't in there for a leg amputation? We've heard these horror stories. My friend Tim Conway Jr., with whom I used to do a radio show, he went into the hospital for some very basic – you know what it was? It was a deviated septum. They did something on his nose probably eight years ago. And he put giant X's on both yeah. of his legs with Sharpies and he wrote, do no, not, no. Yeah, do yeah. not amputate right. because that's when these stories were first starting to come to the forefront and he was paranoid. And I, of course, appreciate that. Right, right. I, I actually, when that, when those rumors were going around, it was probably 10 years ago, there was some, uh, the big case was in Florida, I think, where someone took off the wrong leg. Oh. And so those, those of us in the medical industry would, you know, we roll our eyes and figure how could that possibly happen? But it's not something that, that, thank God, it's not something that happens very commonly, but it has happened. And I remember uh, I was doing an operation on a nurse uh, for taking out her uterus. And oh, the she, patient happened to be an RN? Yeah, she was a friend, RN. Uh-huh. And, uh, she was actually an RN and a CNM, a certified nurse midwife. I see. And um, so she was, all, she's, she was a jokester as well. So when we got to the operating room, we peel up her gown to, to prep her belly. And it says, it has a big arrow and it's going pointing to... Here, uterus in here, right? Oh, so, oh that's so, funny. So that you know, because there is only one, by the way, but you can't miss, you can't take out the wrong uterus. But right, and that was her little joke. It was, for a, you. It, was a, it was a funny joke. Yeah, you guys probably got a good laugh, right? We did, we did get. Well, she was <laughs> funny, and and it was it was great because it it does point out the fact that mistakes are made, and it is ultimately ultimately the responsibility of you, the patient, to mm. be sure that these sort of mistakes are not made. <laughs> on, a, on a funny note about about those sort of anecdotal stories that you hear. You've heard about the women who come into the hospital uh, in labor, right? having some vaginal bleeding, right? and the, the team uh, in the labor and delivery unit, they can't find heart tones, mm. and turns out that the woman isn't even pregnant. Mm. Have you heard of that? Hey, uh, it's called uh, pseudosiesis is the medical term for that. I had one of those when I was a resident. I had a woman who was a little overweight, and she had been going for prenatal care to a, to a free clinic, not a free clinic, but a county clinic. She thought she was pregnant. She swore that she was pregnant. I think there was, you know, upstairs it's a little bit of, yeah, the furniture. Yeah. Well, right. Right. I mean, you know, you know, but yeah, (laughs) right. So she thought for sure she was no doubt. We should tell people by the way, that because of the Caltrans, uh, a jackhammering outside our normal studio today. We're in we're in Brian's uh, studio here at KRLA. Yeah, right? we were in the radio studio, so we have all the very sophisticated sound effects. Would you like to hear some of them? We have yeah, let's Chris, hear a few sound effects. Chris, I'll get back to my story, but let's hear the few sound effects. All right, effects here's here. Chris Matthews. I felt this thrill going up my leg. Here's Hillary laughing. <laughs> here's uh, Alec Baldwin yelling at his daughter. You are a rude, thoughtless little pig. Okay. Here's Bill O'Reilly screaming at his producer. I'll write it and we'll do it live. Here's the Jetsons car. <laughs> and here's our president. It's true. 
There you go. Well, right. 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 And there's a whole lot more. We could sit here for several hours. Well, I like the it's, it's true one. It's one of my favorites because. Oh, right. Well, no, that's what we'll, <laughs> we'll say. save it. We'll, we'll save it. We'll say President Obama. Is it, is it true that Obamacare is a total catastrophe? It's true. Right. That no one can get on the website at all? It's true. Right. And then we'll dial up the website here. Right. And, it, and it's, we were trying to connect here and it's buffering and it's buffering. But really, who has time for that? Oh. And there he goes. <laughs> And then, of course, our final, the theme for any NSA conversation about the spying on us and the listening to our is. phone calls. Right, so. so you guys, all of you need to tune in to, uh, you can do it on the internet <laughs> at uh, 870KRLA. Right. Uh, Brian is on in the morning with Ben and Alicia. Alicia's been one of our guests, by the way. Yeah, she's great. Right. She's great. And her and baby Stevie is- Stevie is getting growing like Stevie weeds. is growing like a weed. I yes. mean, if you, if you, I saw Stevie two weeks ago, we did a live broadcast in the Inland Empire raising toys for Chips for Kids, a CHP toy drive. And Stevie came out and I, if you, if you, if she just showed up without her mom and dad and, you know, drove herself down there at three months, <laughs> I would have said, I don't know that baby because yeah. she looks so different How fast. from, you know, 12 weeks ago. Yep. It's amazing. Yep. Thank God for Facebook because we can watch her, watch, uh, she posts pictures sometimes. Yeah, you sort of track of it. So you can track it. Yeah, otherwise, you can track otherwise it. yeah, you wouldn't see it for three, four months. And you would not recognize it. You wouldn't growth. recognize a baby. No, I mean, it's true. It's remarkable. It's it is. True. Is that true? President Obama's true, right? It's true. Okay, it is true. All right. So back to, back to the pseudosciesis lady. So what's interesting about this case is that when I, they couldn't, the nurses could not find heart tone. So I came in as a resident, brought the ultrasound machine in, mm -hmm. did a quick abdominal ultrasound, expecting to find a dead baby and a tragedy. And she has nothing. There's nothing in there. And she has a uterus the size of a non-pregnant uterus. Mm -hmm. so she's not pregnant. But what made the whole case fascinating is that she had been seen at a county clinic and had prenatal records. She had like four or five visits where heart tones were documented. How would that happen? Uh, no one really listened. Right. To call it, we call it dry labbing. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So they're really hearing mom's heart tones. Well, but mom's heart tones are going to be in the 80s or 90s. They're not going to be 130, 140 like baby's heart tones. Which are accelerated. Right. right. Unless the mom was doing something to make her pulse go up because the mom was, as we said, yeah, mom is, you know, mom, what's going on here? Now, it would seem to me as the doctor, you then have to have what I would assume is probably a rather awkward conversation with a with a woman in the hospital and have to explain to her, I know you came in here thinking you're pregnant and you're about to have a baby, but you're not pregnant at all. Right. And, then you, and, can, and, and can they're very you, hysterical when that happens. I and they don't, imagine. And they think, you're, they think you're lying to them. They think that you're not believing them. And that's in most of this in this one instance, I remember we, we got a psychiatry consult because we could not let her go home. Just in that know, condition, right? Well, I mean, like, sorry, you're, you're bleeding. It's because you're on your period and you're not pregnant and you're not in labor. And these pains that you're having are yourself, yourself creating them by contracting your, your abdominal muscles every three minutes. It's amazing. And that's yeah. a firsthand story. So when you were a resident, you witnessed that because yeah. I, I think a lot of women, ladies who might be listening might think how in the world, they know their bodies, of course, how in the world could they not know they're pregnant? I had 102 fever about 10 days ago and I was walking around with it. I had no idea that I had 102 fever until I realized I didn't feel very well. I went to the doctor and said, Brian, you have 102 fever. Now I'm sure that that's a different sensation, obviously than pregnancy, but one knows one's body and one is in touch with one's own body. So it would seem to be impossible to not know. Well, the opposite side of that story that I just gave are these women who don't know they're pregnant who come into the, uh, to the emergency room with terrible abdominal pain thinking they may have a, a ruptured cyst or a, an appendix or, something, appendix or right? something like that and they get evaluated and they find out that they're nine months pregnant and in labor. Now, most of these women are obviously overweight. You can't be 120 pounds and, and have a, a pregnancy that you don't know about. Right. But, you know, if you're 250 pounds and, you know, and your periods are normally irregular anyway – 
I just, but what I don't understand is what they thought the fetal movement was, what they thought the fetal kicking was. Because the baby's been kicking for the last four or five months. Right. What did you think that was? Gas pain? I mean, what, do you, what did you do? But there are women are in complete denial and they come in. And so it is, it is sort of a, the fringe of what I do or what we do. And, but it's and, fascinating. But it is fascinating. The psychiatric part of what we do is fascinating. And again, that's, that's one of the reasons that attracted me to this particular field is that we get to do a little psychiatry, a little endocrinology, a little surgery, a little family practice, a little uh, internal medicine. Plus we get to deliver babies and do surgery. And so uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating field because pregnancy and things associated with pregnancy there's so much emotion in tie, tied with it, but these are the the oddities. Yeah, and and it, and it's interesting, and we, we we have more on that in a moment. But I uh, follow up with that. It, to me, um, especially when, when you're dealing with with uh, women who are pregnant, there's obviously a great deal of emotion involved there, and you sort of have to size up psychologically or or psychiatrically this person, uh, the the patient, the client, because there people go into the doctor's office with all sorts of stuff. Uh, that they perceive is going on. Or, and I always get angry when somebody says, Brian, you perceive that. It's not real. That's psychosomatic. It's really not happening. I think that offends a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But in fact, you sort of have to do sort of, as you're sitting there talking to somebody as a doctor, I assume you have to be listening to them, but you're really sort of going to the core of what might be going on that they aren't even aware of. Right. When you when you see a patient who has multiple somatic complaints, like everything hurts, everything's wrong, nothing's right, you immediately your brain starts clicking into what else could be going on in this woman's life. Right. In, my, in my particular case, is when men do this too, but but I don't I don't see men, so I'm just generalizing and talking about women. Right. Could it be a relationship issue or something? Well, like a this? lot of times that's what it is. They'll they'll come in complaining that this hurts or that hurts, and and because I have the time and the, the model that I wish I practice now, where I can spend thirty to forty five minutes with someone with their annual visit, or somebody coming in with the third say the third time in a month with vaginitis. Mm-hmm. And I've looked under the microscope. We've sent off some DNA testing. We can never find anything wrong. And she swears something's wrong. So then you can, then because you have experience, you get to know and you start to talk to them and you find out that, you know, they cheated on their husband. And now they're worried that they have some disease and he's going to catch it and she's going to get caught. Or another, another option would be that they feel that their husband's cheating on them. And so suddenly this whole can of worms, it's not my can of worms, it's their can of worms. And after enough conversation, out. it opens up. But if you don't have the time for that in the model where it's set up where you have six or seven minutes for an annual visit or three minutes to do somebody who comes in with a bladder or yeast infection, you're never going to get to that those the bottom line. So there's so much more to healthcare than the way the bean counters have tried to design it where this here's you get so many minutes and so much money for this diagnosis. Right. That's not the way it works. Not every appendix problem is the same. Not every vaginitis is the same. Not everybody who comes in complaining of a headache is the same. Yet, you know, because of the coding and because of the the need to micromanage and bean count, this is how medicine is being forward, going forward, and especially in the era of our, fa- our favorite Obamacare topic. Right. Is, is that true, Mr. President? It is true, right? It's true. Yeah. But it would, and, and it would seem to me from your own experience, Dr. Stu, that it's impossible to properly treat a patient uh, given those restraints, especially given a time restraint I think it's like impossible. That. It's impossible to give care in the, in, when the true meaning of what care means in today's micromanagement, um, you know, medical world where, you know, you have managed care, you have uh, quotas, you have volume, you have, you have, you know, the, the rules that decide what you can prescribe, how much time you can have with a patient, what you're going to get paid, what kind of electronic medical records, what, what your overhead's going to cost. Right. All these things are, are they're all disjointed. 
And that's, again, why this whole takeover of healthcare and stuff like that, you know, it's a, it, like the body in pregnancy, mm -hmm. the whole healthcare system was a sort of a beautiful symphony. It wasn't always working. Sometimes a string broke in the cello section. It's going to happen. And that happens. But it was a, it was a symphony. And trying to change one thing changes. It's a, it's a chain reaction to change everything that follows. And it can't, it can't be done, and it can't be done well. And I really think that, you know, until we have two or three generations of people who only know this crappy system, then maybe they'll be satisfied with it. But the transition now is going to be very stressful for those of us, for the 85% of us supposedly who had, who had a healthcare that we liked. Right. It's going to be difficult. And, you know, it, it would seem to me that given the sort of the new paradigm or what maybe will expose itself in the, in the near future after the first of the year as sort of the new normal for people when it comes to healthcare, that real care, to focus on the word you used a moment ago, care when actually administered will really surprise a patient or a consumer, I should even say, if we're going to call people consumers, when they get that real care, when they sitting there, they're getting 45 minutes of interaction with the doctor and a conversation about their circumstance. That is going to be so shocking to people in America in a couple of decades, in a decade, maybe, I don't know how long, but that care when administered will be like, wow, where did this come from? Well, people will be so unfamiliar with it. They will be unfamiliar with it. That's the, that's the whole impetus behind the concierge type practice where, I mean, I don't do a concierge practice, but I have my own internist does and several other people that I know do. And what they love about their concierge practice is they can spend 10 minutes or an hour and 10 minutes with somebody and it doesn't really mess up their day. And they call patients back with every result. I mean, I love the fact and I want to be treat, I want my patients to be treated as I would want to be treated. When I do a pap smear or something on a patient and it's normal, I call them back and tell them that it's normal. Partly because that's the way I'd want to know. I want to know if someone draws blood on me that it was normal or that somebody does a test on me that it's normal because I think that it's relieving to them and it's also kind of reassuring to them to know that the doctor's on the job. Yeah, and there's some finality there. You know, there's nothing here. But a lot of, a lot of doctors, even some of my uh, associates, will call people back only if something's wrong. And when I hear that, my feeling, my obsessive compulsive feeling is, was it normal or did it fall behind the file cabinet? And and now I've got some horrible disease and no one saw it, nobody know, and nobody knew about it because there is so much room for human error when it comes to evaluating labs between the lab faxing over the wrong information, between the secretary not filing it in the right chart, between it not being put on the desk or anything like that. Those sorts of things can happen at any given time. So, you know, when you have a double check system where you have a tickler system, whatever, you know, I didn't see Mrs. Smith's pap smear report, uh, Chrissy, where is, where is that? And then we look back for it and say, oh, it didn't come back from the lab. We need to call the lab and get it sent back and then we call. And that way we know that it was normal because you just, you know, ultimately the doctor or the nurse practitioner or the midwife or whoever is the caregiver is responsible for, for the care. Yeah. And so in this set, in this system, we can, we are able to care and we're able to take the time to do it. And we're able to get a lot of good self-worth and good feelings from calling people back and having them say really nice things to us on the phone or, or saying, sending a little note for Christmas saying, I, I, w I couldn't possibly go anywhere else. You know, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. Right, because the doctor called it's good news. You know, that, that, that's unusual Yeah, to and they'll tell their husband, you know, so Dr. Fishbein called today and told me everything was great. You know, and the, do and the husband's like, God, that's that's really interesting. My, and my then, doctor never calls me. Right, and, and, then you, and then you think now you can relax. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something sort of very... Uh, obviously uh, peaceful about that. Uh, you yeah, mentioned the, culture, the cultures were negative, honey. Let's go. Well, right, right. I mean, you know, it's a, right. Sort of, let's just kind of, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? And you right. mentioned a moment ago, your doctor, to me, that would be an, uh, if I were a doctor, and as I always say, I'm not a doctor, but if I were a doctor, 
the, the interaction with the other doctor, I guess it would sort of be like being uh, an accountant and has somebody else, another accountant doing your taxes, sort of be like a lawyer being, you know, having to deal with something. And then you've got another lawyer doing what you do when you're sitting there on the crinkly tissue paper, uh, waiting for the doctor, the internist to come in, you're seeing it from an entirely different perspective than I would see it. Or an average person who's not a a, a medical professional would see this whole interaction with the doctor. I I mean, you might be more uh, critical in your mind, of course, for a lot of reasons. Well, I'm, I'm looking at it from, right, from a totally different, different perspective, but I, like most physicians, when we are in the patient role, are quite capable of changing roles and being uh, not subservient, but being um, respectful and and, and kind of deferring to the doctor. Deferring, deferent. That's the word I was looking for. Deferring to the physician as the expert. And and yeah, I mean, I can. But you're a physician. What if you have it in your head that it's not that that you haven't gotten? Then I would ask questions. I mean, then I would, but I would probably know the questions to ask. If it came to something close to my specialty, which of course isn't going to help me much, right? But you know, if I have a problem, if I'm having chest pain, and he tells me I need to do this, this, and this, I I would take his word for it because I don't know chest pain very well. Mm-hmm. But and that's the whole point. That gets back to the basic tenet of Dr. Sue's podcast. Whenever is to make sure that if you're going to see a practitioner, that it's got to be somebody that you trust. It has to be somebody. Has you to trust. be somebody you trust. Yeah, and interesting. You said a moment ago, and, and and we'll touch on this before we go. You said you were talking, and I made a note here about uh, the the surgeries we were talking earlier, and you said that you performed the surgery on this woman who was a nurse, and you knew her. That must be odd to perform a surgery on someone you know personally. Wouldn't the nerves be amped up? Wouldn't you sort of be on edge? And do most do most uh, surgeons or, or doctors say, you know what, I, I know you, you're my friend. I'm not going to perform surgery on you. I might be too nervous. Well, that that's a good point. Um, it, you know, it's an honor when a doctor colleague or a nurse colleague asks you to do you do their surgery. And so I don't consider, I, I think there's a, mm. a very compartmentalization of that between your friendship and being their surgeon or being their doctor. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that that's not a, uh, not a problem. I don't think there's an ethical boundary there or a problem. There is a, probably an ethical issue with maybe operating on a family member, something like that. I think that although people do it all the time. Do they really? See, that, that, that's fascinating to me. A, a lot of doctors operate on their family members. I think that they do. I think that, that again, everybody is different, and I, I don't want to generalize the statement. Sure. I know that I would not want to be operating on my sister or my wife right. or my children. Right. I would not want to do that. Um, because when, of the, the 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 nerves and and all of this and the my, emotions involved. When my wife had our daughter, she had her by C-section. Was her third C-section, mm-hmm. and she chose to have a repeat C-section. Um, my partner, who was her doctor, oh. asked me if I wanted to assist on the surgery, which would have been fun, but I said no. And the reason I said no was partly because I didn't want to be involved should there be a problem, and secondly, I really wanted to experience it from the dad end of the table because it was going to be my probably my only time mm. of being on the dad end of the table, which was up at the, by the head, you know, holding my wife's head or holding my wife's hand. Right. That's that sort of thing. But, you know, again, had I scrubbed in on that, it would it would not have been, to be the assistant surgeon would not have been that big a deal. Wow, this is, that's fascinating to me. So he, were you surprised when he asked you, he said, you know, Stu, you know, I'm going to perform a C-section on your wife, going to have your baby here. Do you want to be in on this surgery? Uh, wow, I can't. No, I think, he, I think he was honoring me. 
Yeah, right. I do. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it, it, I just don't. I don't think that doctors should operate on themselves, though. I think that would. Be, yeah, I that think would be that would wrong. be a problem, and and I don't think anybody should operate on themselves. So I think we'll leave on that note here, because I think it's really. I think that's something that everybody can agree on. If you have the thought today that you know you might take your own appendix out. It's a bad idea. Right. Don't do that. Right. And don't use Purell to wash your hands before you operate on yourself either because you don't know what that's doing to you. Right, right. So, so really and just- And vitamins are probably not going to heal the incision very well, so you probably don't need those either. That's right. So, so Eat healthy. Right. And so just be careful. It's right. true. Right, right. It Let's is ask true. President Obama. Is it true, President Obama? It is true. I mean, it has to be true. It's true. Right. Are there any buts with the Obamacare? Are there any sort of exceptions? And here's the big butt. Right. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us here on Dr. Stu's podcast at Dr. Stu'spodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give the doctor five stars and write a nice review. Merry Christmas, and we will see you next time for Dr. Stu and Fish. Don't forget to send us some emails at askdrstu at gmail.com. That's right. I'm sorry. I look forward to those every week and trying to answer some of them. That's right. So log on. And if you've still got the <laughs> dial-up connection, well then we can't help you. I mean, if this is if you're still hearing this sound in 2013, soon to be 2014. Isn't that the Obamacare website theme song? That is the Obamacare website. It's not working. Is that true, Mr. That's true. Okay, we'll see you next time on Dr. <laughs> Stu's podcast. Thanks for joining us.